And so we've looked at a lot of the claims that Jesus has made about himself. We've heard Jesus tell over and over the reason why he has come. We've heard Jesus explain with consistent clarity that he has come from the Father, that he is with the Father, that he is in the Father, the Father is in him. He only speaks what the Father tells him to speak and only does what the Father tells him to do. We know that he has made some pretty stiff accusations against the Jews, the Jewish leaders primarily, and then later in our passages, those that had professed to believe in him. He's told them that they are not from above, they are from below. They are not in the Father, they don't know the Father, because they don't know Jesus, they don't listen to his words, they have no place in him and he has no place in them. And so over these six or seven messages that we've looked at together from John chapter 7 and 8, there's been four basic areas of conflict that have existed between Jesus and those that he has been speaking to. And the conflict began simply enough with a discussion. The healing on the Sabbath that Jesus did as we studied way back in John chapter 5, and then the ensuing conversation about that where Jesus debated them and basically told them it's okay for you to circumcise on the Sabbath and why is it not okay for me to make a whole man well on the Sabbath also. He went on to say that if they would believe in him, then he would give to them springs of living water that would spring forth from them, that they would be repositories of life and would also have the message of life to give to others. A a spring of living water is not a stagnant pool. It is a spring that flows, and that is what's to be true of our lives. The truth of who He is, the deposit of Jesus Christ in us through the Holy Spirit, is to be a spring of living water that flows from our lives. He also declared that He was the light of the world, and if you would come to Him and believe in Him, you would no longer walk in darkness. So there was the discussion that took place in these dialogue in this dialogue that Jesus had, but it moved into an emotional involvement as Jesus dug a little bit deeper into the hardness of heart that existed within the Jewish leaders and the people. And so he went on to tell them that unless they believed in him, that they would die in their sins. Unthinkable for a Jewish person to be able to die in their sins because after all, they were God's chosen people. They were students of the law. For them, knowledge meant spiritual life. And in their lives, they saw no need for repentance, and they saw no reason why they could ever die in their sin. Jesus went on to tell them that they were actually in bondage to sin. They were the slaves of sin because they lived lives that demonstrated a regular and consistent practice of sin. Jesus went on to tell them that they were not true descendants of Abraham, which is what they rested in, is what they staked their security in was they could go back and claim Abraham as their father. And as we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, Jesus went on to say that not all who descend from Abraham are his true descendants. There is a physical ancestry that comes from Abraham. All Jews would fit into that category. But there's also a spiritual ancestry that flows from Abraham. And that is reserved for those who love the Lord, obey the Lord, and follow the Lord. The application that Jesus makes 
is that if you are a true descendant of Abraham, you will know the Father, and because you know the Father, you will know me, the Son, because He has sent me and I speak His words. Well, they couldn't do that. They couldn't accept the things that He said. And because of that, Jesus said that you are not true descendants. He is not your Father. Your true spiritual Father is Satan himself. Well, this moved into verbal abuse as a part of the conflict. As we looked at last time, when Jesus challenged their ancestry, they accused him of being born of fornication, understanding that Mary was betrothed to be married to Joseph, and yet they were not married, and yet she was pregnant. So the assumption was, is that there was something going on in Mary's life that meant that Jesus potentially had Joseph as his earthly father, but he also had a biological father, and we'll look at this a little bit more deeply today. And so they said, we are not born of fornication. We are of Abraham. We have one father, that is God. Maybe you have two fathers. So there's this verbal abuse that begins in 841. And our passage today, we're going to see a continuation of that. And then we're going to see the culmination of this conflict in the very last verse in our passage today, and that is the attempt to stone Jesus and to physically assault him. Well, that's a review of where we've been over the last several weeks. And so now we're going to turn our attention to John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59, and finish this dialogue that takes place at the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 48 begins, The Jews answered and said to him, Do we, have not, do we, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Verse 53, Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have, and, you, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So we're going to divide this up into seven little sections as we go through these verses together. The first thing we're going to look at here is the attack. The attack that the Jews make upon Jesus. Now remember, beginning in verse 31, it tells us that Jesus is addressing the crowd that believed in Him. So we don't really know if this is a separate group that is uh, making these accusations against Him or challenging Him, or if they are a collective part of this group who does believe in Him. So it's likely that there is a group that believes in Him. There are some who probably don't believe in Him, but there is some who do, and it's likely that Jesus is not only addressing those who refute His claims, but those who have made a fake or a partial commitment to Him as Lord and Savior. So we have the attack. Verse 48, The Jews answered and said to Him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So their theological debate with Jesus is a failure 
They can't get him to change his mind or to relent in the claims that he's making. And so they resort to personal attack and more insult. The first part of the insult here is calling him a Samaritan. In the Jewish mind, a Samaritan was a half-breed. Now, since they've already accused him of being born out of fornication, perhaps his real father wasn't Jewish at all, and you are a half-breed like our hated Samaritan enemies. Perhaps that's who you really are, and perhaps that's the reason you have the audacity to say these things to us, because you yourself are not a Jew, You may have some fake ancestral tie to Abraham like you're accusing us of having a fake ancestral tie. So they're calling him a Samaritan. It is, in fact, the most damaging insult that a Jew could ever render to another individual. If you think of the worst thing anybody could ever say to you that would be a personal insult about you, That is this to a much greater degree. The Jews and the Samaritans absolutely hated each other. It's funny that this is the only mention in all four of the Gospels where anybody accused Jesus or made an accusation against him of being a Samaritan. Now, if you remember back in John chapter 4, Jesus had the encounter with the woman at the well, the woman who had seven husbands and was now living with a man who was not her husband. Well, the Jews and the Samaritans considered themselves deep enemies, immense hatred, and they actually despised one another. Jewish people considered Samaritans traitors for marrying outside the Jewish faith all the way back to the exile period of 722 when the nation of Israel was dispersed among the pagan nations and they intermarried. And so full-blooded Jews considered them to be traitors, to their heritage, but more than that, they considered them to be heretics because they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They dismissed all the prophets and all of the wisdom literature and all of the historical narrative. All they really accepted was what would be considered the Torah. So to be called a Samaritan by a Jew was a tremendous insult and brought great dishonor to the individual and was perhaps the greatest insult you could ever make to another individual in the Jewish mind. So that's the first part of this accusation or insult they make, is that he is a Samaritan, but they actually go a little bit further and accuse him of being demon-possessed. And in this context and culture, it means someone who is crazy or someone who is actually insane. This isn't the only time they've made this accusation against Jesus. I think in the Gospel of John, it's recorded anywhere from six to seven times, and it's repeated in all the other Gospels that they accused him of being crazy or insane because of the claims that he made. Now, in this setting and in this context, they're making this accusation against him because he is having the gall to question their true Ancestry Again, to accuse a Jew of not being a real Jew, not being from the line of Abraham, would be a tremendous insult to make against them. So they're outraged at the words of Jesus. They can't refute them. And so they insult him in the harshest way possible by calling him a demon-possessed Samaritan. doesn't mean as much to you and I as it would to a Jew, but it is fighting words for Jewish people to be called such 
a dishonorable name. So we see the attack that is made against Jesus. Now we're going to see the response that Jesus makes in light of this. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. So think about it like this. If Jesus was truly crazy or was truly insane, how might he respond to this accusation of being a demon-possessed Samaritan. One commentator in this passage said that this kind of dishonor has engaged other countries to go to war in an attempt to restore the honor that was lost by this accusation. You know, in all these villages and all these tribes all around the world, when you dishonor someone, it can bring about a physical fistfight. In the gang world, being dishonored often brings a fatal retaliation. But here, Jesus simply says, in light of this harsh insult, I do not have a demon. And for the most part, in his response, he proves that he is right. But he goes on to explain why he has said what he has said about them not being from Abraham and their actual father being the devil himself. The first thing he says here is, I honor my father. So not only is this true in his response that he honors his father, it is true in the words that he has spoken about the Jewish people. It is true in all of his words. It's true in all of his works. It's true in every bit of his life. His entire life is lived in honor of the father. He is fulfilling the divine mission that began in eternity past and culminated in the incarnation and will then find its actual end at the cross when Jesus is killed and buried and then raised on the third day. For their part, they're not honoring their alleged father. They claim to have God as their father. They are not honoring their alleged father and are in fact dishonoring the father in their dishonor of Jesus. Not only the insult levied against him, but also and the rejection of him, and the rejection of the words that Jesus speaks. If you go back to John chapter 5.23, Jesus says, So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. But I tell you, this is a line in the sand in terms of religious expression. If you don't honor the life and the teaching of Jesus, if you aren't fully invested in the cross of Christ, And if you don't find great security in the resurrection alone, then there's a very good chance that you have subscribed to a religion that does not honor the Father because it does not honor the Son. If you believe that your your religious expression brings honor to the Father, then Jesus has to be front and center in all that you do in terms of honoring God. So not only does he say, I honor the Father, he says this, that God will judge Verse 50, but I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judge and judges. As has been stated repeatedly in this dialogue that he has had with the religious leaders and the people at the Feast of Tabernacle, and as it has been repeated already in the Gospel of John, Jesus isn't seeking to glorify himself. He is only seeking the Father who has sent him, who has put him on this divine mission, who is in Him. That's what Jesus' life and ministry is all about. If Jesus was seeking His own glory, if His ministry was about building Himself up, 
then he would be entirely non-confrontational to the Jewish people. He would say what the people wanted him to hear. He would do what the people wanted him to do as they clamored for for signs and for miracles. And as you remember back at the feeding of the 5,000, which was over 20,000 people, they wanted him to give them this bread every day. Well, rather than seeking his own glory and his own fame by having an ever-increasing crowd, he told them that if they didn't eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, they would have no part of him. Meaning that if they didn't come to Christ at the cross if they didn't embrace His sacrificial death on the cross, then they, have, they would have no part in Him and therefore have no part in the Father. Jesus isn't about mass appeal. He isn't about saying what the crowds want Him to hear. He is about bringing honor to the Father because He knows the Father is the one that is going to judge His life and His ministry just as He knows that the Father is going to judge how every individual responds to the invitation of Christ and the claims that he has made about himself. You know, you look at the modern church movement today and you can listen to a lot of very popular pastors, a lot of very large churches who are doing exactly what Jesus is demanding he's not doing and that is seeking their own glory. You know, it's sad that the churches that appear to be growing so fast don't really preach Jesus at the cross. They don't preach the need for repentance and humility before the Lord. They preach about destiny. They preach about God's blessing. They preach about God wanting to give you. He's entitled to you. He wants to give you a miracle. He wants to bail you out of your debt. He wants to deliver you from whatever that thing might be. It's not about Christ. It's not about humbly serving Him. It's about what you, as an elevated man, are entitled to. These are the churches that appear to be growing so fast in our country today. And it is an abomination to the truth of God's Word and to the cross of Christ. Well, not only does God judge the motives of Jesus and the ministry and the words and the miracles that Jesus preaches and teaches and performs, He, he judges our response to Christ. As we looked at in John 8.24, Therefore, Jesus speaking, I said to you that you will die in your sins For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. That little phrase, I am He, in the Greek, is called ego am I. It's the exact same phrase we're going to look at in 858 where Jesus says, I am. And Jesus has said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The Jewish people, and especially the Jewish leaders, will not be judged on how they think they have upheld the law, but they will be judged on the response to Jesus' invitation to believe that He is who He says He is. My friend, you and I are not going to be judged on how we think we've lived up to the standard of God's holiness and God's righteousness. We don't have a prayer apart from being washed in the blood of Christ. If we believe in anything else for our salvation, if we trust anything else for our salvation, we are being deceived and we will not have any part in Him and we will sadly die in our sins. The third thing that Jesus explains in His response is that eternal life is in Him and it's in Him alone. Verse 51, Truly, truly I say to you, remember every time Jesus says that, 
He is saying something of utmost importance. It's the equivalent of saying, I solemnly swear to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Man, what a great promise, isn't that? Isn't that just amazing to know that if we will abide in His Word, keep His Word, believe in His Word, obey His Word, that we will never see death. To the one who responds to the invitation of salvation, to the one who will continue and obey His Word, Jesus says you will never experience death. Now you and I know that Jesus means you'll never experience spiritual death. He's not talking about physical death. And the greatest thing that mankind can experience is spiritual resuscitation because we are spiritually dead apart from the life that comes into us when we come to the cross and repent of our sins and claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior. When we do that, we are made into a new spiritual creature. The tarnished image of God in us has been restored because we have been made new. We have been made holy just like Jesus is. And we will continue in the process of sanctification until our days on this earth are over. And then we will be restored to the glory that God had created man to enjoy. Even after issuing this incredible insult towards Jesus that he is a demon-possessed Samaritan, he still issues the same invitation that they continually reject. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Well, we see this rejection that continues to surface in the lives of these religious leaders and perhaps even in those who have made a profession of faith in him. Number three, we see the challenge now that they issue against Jesus in verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Jesus' statement that if you believe in His Word and never taste of death, has sent them over the edge. They are without a doubt convinced that Jesus is absolutely nuts. He's crazy to make such a claim that to believe in Him, you would never taste of death. So the challenge is really twofold. One, how can someone not die? Well, they restate their assertion that Jesus has a demon because of a statement that belief in Him would not result in death, or that they would not would negate their death. And of course, they're thinking purely in physical terms. So the rationale is this, is that Abraham heard the word and he obeyed the word and he died. The prophets heard the word and they obeyed the word and they even taught the word and they died. So, crazy man, who do you think you are? How can you say that if we believe in your word, we will not die? Verse 53, Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Abraham was the hero of the faith. Moses was a very close second. And so in their minds, there isn't anybody who could ever be greater than Abraham except for the one who is going to come, the Messiah. And we know, crazy man, that you're not him. So tell us, who do you think you are? They ask the question, are you greater than Abraham? And they absolutely expect a negative response to that. For one to claim to be greater than Abraham was unthinkable 
because he was the father of the nation of Israel. He was the one to whom the covenant was given about the nation of Israel. He was the father of all of the great patriarchs. There couldn't be anybody who was greater than that except for the Messiah. And again, we don't believe that you are him. Well, this brings us now to the explanation that Jesus is going to make in this question about are you greater than Abraham. This explains what was just being asked. Verse 54, Jesus answered, and this is a little bit repetitious, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. If it is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. What Jesus says here is that self-glory is nothing. Any glory that comes to me, that is created by me, amounts to absolutely nothing. Now, you and I would do well to remember that. Any glory that you and I can create for ourselves is really empty and meaningless. The only glory that you and I should be interested in is the glory that comes through us to the Father. I'm always a little uneasy when people give these great accolades and show tremendous adulation towards other humans, there's a, there's a need to thank people. There's a need to show there's value in what people do. And when people are quick to give you that kind of attention we must be very, very careful that we instantly redirect that to the Father. He's the one that gets the glory for any good that comes from our life. Any glory that we create for ourselves is empty and meaningless. Jesus restates that he does not seek his own glory, nor does he seek the glory of others. What he does isn't for the people he's serving, ministering to, or bringing into the kingdom. What he does, he does for the Father and for the Father alone. This glory given to the Son by the Father that they think they know, this glory is actually foreign to them because these people, most especially the religious leaders, were all about getting all the glory they could for themselves. That's why they liked the seat of honor. That's why they liked to walk around in their fancy garments so everybody knew that they were Pharisees. That's why when they gave their offerings in the temple, they would make a big deal about it because they wanted others to give glory and they were willing to soak it in because they needed it, they sought after it, and it brought value to what they did. That's absolutely upside down. What we do should bring glory to God and to God alone. This God that they claim to know gets no glory from them. They keep it all for themselves. Secondly, in this explanation, Jesus says that his glory comes from obedience. Verse 55, and you have, you, have, you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Jesus' glory comes from obedience to God's will by dying on the cross to secure the redemption of those who will place their faith in Him. The glory of the Father comes to Jesus through the resurrection and the ascension. The glory of the Father comes to Jesus by His obedience to the words He hears the Father say, by the deeds the Father tells Him to do. This glorification on the cross 
which is the ultimate glorification for Christ, is also the means by which Jesus will return to glory, having finished the divine plan of redemption. Despite their claim to know God, Jesus sets the record straight. You do not know him. You do not know anything about his glory. And if I were to say that, I would be a liar like you are a liar. They don't obey God. They don't obey the desires Excuse me, they only obey the desires of their true father, which is the devil himself, and they obey those desires by seeking to kill the son, the one the father sent to save them from their sins so they would no longer walk in darkness. If Jesus were to deny his knowledge of and identity with the father, then he would be the liar, not the people he is accusing of being untruthful. He proves his knowledge of God by obeying him, And by doing everything the Father tells them to do, this results in the Father's glorification of Jesus. This is what brings glory to him. The third way that Jesus explains this is this. Abraham saw this glory. He says in verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now this pushes the Jewish people over the edge for a couple of reasons. Since they are continually bringing Abraham into the conversation, Jesus is going to continually use Abraham to explain who he is and the mission that he is on. Abraham was the father of the nation by virtue of the covenant given to him all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 when he was in the land of Ur and God said, Abraham, I want you to go to the land that I will show you. I will bless you and make you a father of a great nation. That was the beginning of the covenant. And Abraham said, okay. There was no written word. There was no revelation. There was only this verbal instruction from God. Somehow, some way, go, I will show you. And Abraham says, okay. When God continued the covenant with Abraham by saying, you will give birth to a son, and it is through this line that all the nations of the world will be blessed, Abraham said, okay. And that covenant came to him when he was 99 years old. And the birth of Isaac came, and when the birth of Isaac came, Abraham was able to look forward and see the completion of the covenant that he would never physically see, but he saw it in faith, prophetically, because he walked with God, and he obeyed God, and he trusted God. In Hebrews chapter 11, there is an account of the heralded Old Testament saints who walked in faith against all odds in the most difficult of circumstances. And if you want to go read that list, it is a who's who of Old Testament saints. And here's what we read in 11.13, talking about Abraham and these other saints in general. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles, on earth. And this is what this means, is that Abraham, like all these great heroes of the faith, were given revelation by God. They spoke prophecy through the Word of God given to them. And although they didn't physically see it, they spiritually believed it to come. And by virtue of that faith in that, they saw Jesus' day in the future prophetically. And they rejoiced when that day was going to come for the nation of Israel that God was going to send the Messiah at an unknown time to them That would be the day that Abraham and all the Old Testament saints would rejoice in. 
They welcomed Christ's day, understanding that it meant that it was going to be the coming of the Messiah. They themselves didn't experience it, but they saw it coming as they believed God, as they obeyed God, and as they walked faithfully with Him. This is what Jesus means when He says, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Abraham saw that day some 2,000 years before, and he rejoiced at the coming of the Messiah. Now, as Abraham resides in heaven, looking down, he sees the day, and most certainly he and all the other saints of old would rejoice in the day of the Messiah. So now we see the response here. We see the, re- the objection that the Jewish people are going to make in light of this claim that Abraham saw the day of Jesus. Verse 57, the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? So the objection is, you're too young. You're not even 50. And that's not an attempt to date Jesus' age. In this culture, in this environment, a person who was 50 was entering into retirement age because the lifespan was much, much shorter. In fact, we do know that the Levites who served in the temple finished their service at about the age of 50. How is it possible that you have seen this man who's been dead for nearly 2,000 years, when you are not even 50 years old. Well, Jesus didn't say that he saw Abraham. Jesus saw Abraham, saw his day. That's a big difference, isn't it? Abraham prophetically looked forward in faith and saw the coming of the Messiah. He saw when the Messiah would come and he would rejoice in that. Jesus never claimed to to have laid eyes on Abraham Well, as the culmination of all this dialogue that began all the way back in chapter 7 and verse 16, with all the comparisons between Moses and Abraham, Jesus makes this last statement, and he makes it incredibly clear. And this is the declaration that Jesus makes about who he really is. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I solemnly swear to you, before Abraham was, I am. Who do you think you are? I know who I am. I am. Jesus makes an undeniably clear statement about who he believes himself to be. Not only did Abraham see him prophetically from the past, but before Abraham was ever born, Jesus existed as the I am. By using the timeless designation of God as the I am rather than I was, Jesus conveyed not only the idea of existence prior to Abraham, but timelessness, the very nature of God Himself. He could have said, before Abraham was, I was. But instead He said, before Abraham was, I am. There's only one way this can be understood. Jesus is claiming for Himself the most sacred name of God that the Jews had. Yahweh. A name so sacred they wouldn't say it. A name so sacred they wouldn't write it. They would just make a little mark. The Tetragrammaton is what it's called. He makes the claim of full deity who has existed from eternity before Abraham was. I am When God called Moses to his divine mission to liberate the Jews from slavery to the nation of Egypt, he asked God 
Who should I say sends me? And God responds in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. And this is where this name comes from. The self-designated title for God is I am. And this is what Jesus is claiming for Himself. Everything that God is is summed up in the expression I am. We can see the response of the people now in verse 59. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at Him, but Jesus had hid Himself and went out of the temple. Now in the book of Leviticus, stoning for blasphemy was prescribed after a calm judicial process. If someone was accused of blasphemy, there was a way that they were to go through this in a calm and orderly fashion. And if blasphemy was the end result, then there was going to be a stoning. But here, the attempt to stone Jesus is the result of mob violence not a calm judicial process. This response verifies the claims that Jesus has made, that you are not of God, you are not from the ancestry of Abraham, you are in fact from your true spiritual father, the devil, in that they are now literally picking up stones to end Jesus' life on the spot in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacle. Now, there's no explanation of how Jesus hid himself and how he eluded this murderous attempt, but what we do know is that God's providential divine timetable would not be interrupted by any man, by any event or any activity. It would only come in the appointed time, which is in about six months, when Jesus will return to Jerusalem at the Feast of the Passover. Who is Jesus to you? Is he a moral teacher? Is he a social figure? Is he a prophet? Is he a good man? Or is he all that God is summed up in a simple expression, ego am I, I am. Father, we thank you that we know this incredible truth about who the Messiah is. Father, how we thank you that you have sent him to set your people free from their sin, so that we would not die in sin, so that we would no longer walk in darkness, but we would come to believe in Him and have within us springs of living water, able to shine the light of the world into the world, directing others to the only one who is deserving of any glory. Father, would you wake us up from our spiritual slumber where we have allowed you just to be our friend, or a companion, and not the true Lord and Savior of our life. Would you speak to the depth of our heart through your Spirit as only you can. Draw us to yourself as we celebrate who you really are, the great I Am. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.